Good afternoon, 7 Investors, and welcome to the Friday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks-Klein. I'm the host of the program, and I'm being joined today by Matt Cochran. Matt, you came up with the idea for this show. We're going to talk about how to invest in small-town America, and you came up with that because you just got back from some of the smaller towns in America. Where were you? Oh, that's right. Yeah, we were uh, we were visiting my uh, my sister's family and. Um, my niece was getting married in the northwest corner of Alabama. So if you're from Alabama, shout out. Like, we went to Killen, Alabama. And then we spent uh, a few days, like, uh, semi-camping near Lake Gunnersville, which is in the northern area of Alabama. Then we had to drive back 13 hours, and most of that was on small country roads. That sounds awful. And for those of you who don't know, <laughs> Matt has four kids. Uh, he hasn't even named all of them. Some of them just have numbers or symbols. <laughs> so that that is a long, are we there yet, ride. For people. We, of course, would like your questions and comments. You can talk about uh, your small town investment ideas. You can ask us questions about just about anything. We're also going to talk later on about lessons learned during the pandemic. Matt, before we get to some specific companies, and we are going to give you three companies that we think are good investing plays in small town America. We're not saying these are these are picks. These are just companies we follow that we're fond of. Of course, to get access to our picks, you need to be a seven investing subscriber. But before we get into it, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview about what's happening in the in the in, in the country? We're having a bit of a small town resurgence. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, the funny thing is, I mean, for the last year and uh, a few months, we've been talking about remote work, and a lot of the obvious plays have been uh, beaten to death by analysts and investors, and you know, like the Zooms, the Microsofts, the Slacks. Uh, like those companies in the world have obviously done very, uh, very well during the pandemic. But, you know, something that we haven't talked as much as much about is that how, how the pandemic has caused like a population shift where more people are moving from cities and suburbs to uh, more small towns. And, you know, the first like obvious thing is like the housing market we've seen. You know, like I was reading some uh, recent Wall Street Journal articles that kind of like sparked my interest in this as Right before I made my trip and, you know, it talked about how prices are skyrocketing and places that, you know, until recently offered affordable entry for the middle class to buy houses. That, yeah, it has gotten very strange. So we're seeing some of the smaller cities, some of the beaten down cities of the country have these massive price increases because people are looking and they're saying, OK, uh, you know, I can move. So where can I live that would be affordable? And even the worst towns. Uh, tend to have you know neighborhoods that are livable or neighborhoods that are on the cusp. So let me give you a few examples here. We've seen prices surge since January in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, no offense to people in Allentown, but when you've been commemorated in a Billy Joel song about how your whole town is shutting down, that's not great. Uh, so, you know, so their prices have jumped by 24%. Martin, Tennessee, that's a small city about 150 miles from Nashville. The median asking price went up 159%. You're seeing local bidders get priced out of the markets. You're seeing sight unseen people buying houses. Matt, is this getting a little bit nuts? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it seems like it is, right? I mean, you have local buyers bidding against each other. You as well as have investors. Like investors now comprise about a fifth of annual home sales nationally. And, you know, the low inventory means, you you know, buyers have to make quick decisions Many are making no-look offers, which means they actually haven't seen the house they're bidding on 
in person. Yeah, and that's actually something I did. So I'm doing this show today from our about to be uh, put on the market rental property in Davenport, Florida. Uh, and as you know, as everyone who watches this show regularly knows, we recently bought a condo a few miles down the street at a resort. And uh, I, I was there today and, and I'm not doing the show from there because checkout is 10 a.m. and we have guests coming in. But we literally were tracking when new listings went up. And if a listing went up, unless it was obviously something wrong with it, we were putting in offers, not having seen it. Now we knew the property, we knew sort of the ranges of what they look like. So maybe if you got one at the high end of the price range uh, that needed flooring, maybe we wouldn't come in over asking price. But the one we actually bought, uh, everything was done and we came in well over asking price and we're lucky enough to get it. Since that point, I've been tracking uh, properties that are selling in this same city and Davenport is a very small city, uh, sort of outside of Orlando, which well, physically it is a very large city. Population wise, it is a very small place. Uh, and you're seeing prices skyrocket. Uh, uh, Dylan, we appreciate the comments, but that's actually on you. We have a number of people uh, who are monitoring our connection uh, and saying it's not an issue. So apologies that this is not coming through well for you, but it is absolutely coming through okay for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how this population shift. And it's not a massive population shift, but it is a meaningful population shift. How this affects three different companies uh, we are both big fans of, or at least two of the three I'm a big fan of. The third one, I don't know as well. Uh, the first one, uh, to be fair, before we get to that, let's talk about trends a little bit. Matt, you shared a graphic with me that we don't own, so we can't share it. Um, does this look like a long-term trend? Uh, yeah, it does, Dan. So like, there was a poll in 2018 that Gallup conducted, which suggested that like more people want to live in rural areas than uh, anywhere else in the U.S. So 27% of this Gallup poll responded that if they could pick where they wanted to live, uh, 27% said rural area. And that was over choices like big city, small city, suburb of a big city, suburb of a small city. More people suggested a uh, rural area than anywhere else. And not only that, but the rural area is where the biggest gap where Americans would like to live and where Americans actually live existed. So like 27% wanted to live in a rural area, but only 15% actually did. And not only that, Dan, like uh, last year uh, in late 2020, Upstart uh, conducted a survey that found indeed that remote workers really are on the move. So it founded that anywhere between 14 million and 23 million Americans were planning to move as a result of remote work. And when you combine that with those moving regardless of remote work, Upstart predicted that the near-term migration rates may be three to four times what they normally are. It also found that 20% of those who wanted to move were currently based in big cities and they wanted to get out. And the biggest reason people wanted to move is to find more affordable housing. 52.5% said they were planning to move to a house that was significantly more affordable than their current residence. And all those things just make sense. I mean, right, Dan, I mean, what we're talking about, if you can make the same or almost the same amount of money working remotely, you know, a lot of people want to like bow out of there's really high mortgage rates or, uh, you know, high housing prices they have in the city and can move somewhere else for like a fraction of the price. Yeah, that's actually what we did when we first moved to Florida. Like we were living in Connecticut. Connecticut is a very expensive place to live. Uh, and admittedly, we opted, we wanted to live downtown in the city. So we didn't go as cheaply as you could go. Uh, but we bought a, a small three-bedroom condo. And for the same amount of money we were spending in Connecticut, 
We had access to a beautiful pool and a gym and all the downtown amenities. So the problem is now someone who wanted to do that might not be able to do it. We, we sold our condo for about 50% more than we paid for it. And I don't know that the housing market in Connecticut is 50% up. Uh, so you're seeing some real trends. You're also going to see, I think, people moving into places that maybe weren't doing so well. But if you see a big influx of people, you know that can turn communities around. So this is going to be interesting. It is going to be a big trend to watch going forward. But Matt, let's uh, let's not say all three companies we're going to talk about here. Let's do them one by one. And uh, all right. I'll, I'll let you go first here because I know you've got some graphics as well. Uh, but the first company we're going to talk about is Dollar General. I am about three miles down the road from Dollar General in one direction. And then there's another one about seven miles down the road in the other direction. This is a company that really, really understands its market. And I'll point out, while Davenport, Florida has a big mix of uh, wealthy homes, it's largely, I think the median income is in like the 40,000s. It is not a wealthy place. So it fits directly in to the Dollar General model. Matt, your thoughts on Dollar General? Well, yeah, before we get into the specific numbers, just anecdotally, like we were in, uh, when we were in Alabama and we were like visiting, like uh, we're doing a lot of hikes and uh, boating and things like that. And at one of these parks, there was a nature trail and uh, I forget the name of it, but it was uh, the guy who had first explored that park and it was called, that guy's name, Boulevard. And uh, we had a, 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 a park ranger leading the tour and he joked, he made a joke and he goes, you know, the only, what, what, what is different about this boulevard than any other boulevard in Alabama? And he goes, on this boulevard, you won't find at least two dollar generals. And <laughs> it's because like when you go in small town America, you I mean, you can't go anywhere without running into a dollar general. And I mean, uh, you know, if you live in a big city, I understand I or I understand why you wouldn't really be familiar with this store. Like before my uh, parents moved to rural South Carolina, like a, a few years ago, like uh, I don't think I've ever been to a dollar general. And I know we have some around, but like there is really no reason for me to. Um, but like when they moved, like the, the nearest Walmart was probably 10 miles away, but there was a Dollar General about a half mile away. And so, you know, when you need to run to the store to get some milk or like, uh, you know, what, what, whatever else you might need, uh, a snack or, or anything, you're going to the Dollar General. There was nowhere else to go that was even remotely close. Um, Dollar General, let me jump yeah. in. Dollar yeah. General serves areas that are underserved by supermarkets. 100%. They also sell in quantities that are definitely aimed at people for whom money is tight. You you probably cannot go into your, your Publix or your Stop and Shop or your Kroger or whatever it is and buy a half a roll of toilet paper. And I make that joke, I've said it before in the show, but it's actually true. You can go in and buy that type of quantity at a Dollar General. And the reason for that is some of the people shopping there, that's kind of what they can afford at the moment. They can buy one can of soda, not necessarily a 12 pack at a time. And I recognize that there's other places you can buy a can of soda, but Dollar General isn't doing the markup. This is a company that is incredibly focused on serving an underserved audience and really knowing what they need. So the merchandise varies. Uh, I, I'm in sort of a tourist area. So the Dollar General stocks things like pool noodles that it wouldn't necessarily stock at the one that was next to the college campus uh, where I lived in Connecticut, which was the only one around there. And that made sense. A lot of college students don't have a car. They're limited as to where they can go. So this is a company that they're not catered to me. I walk into the store and I actually find the stores disheveled. Uh, I don't like sort of how crowded they are. But if I needed some dog food, a USB cable, 
a beach towel, uh, a, a coffee can, you know, who knows what else. You can buy all of these things in this one stop. So does it speak to people that need to just like shop on a day-to-day basis? Yes, it does. Does it speak to the tourists in the area? Absolutely. This is a company that's adding about a thousand stores a year. Uh, and it's worth noting, this is not a company you judge by same store sales. We'll probably throw those numbers out at some point, but basically Dollar General knows where to put a store. It gets up to speed very quickly. And then its sales variance is not going to be that high. Matt, why don't you jump in with some of the specifics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sam, if we have that graphic, can we just throw it up? It's from a recent uh, investor relations page. So they have 17,000 stores in the U.S., which is an incredible number. It would almost make you think, like, how much more can they grow? But actually, this year, uh, the company plans to execute 2,900 real estate projects. That includes 1,050 new store openings, 1,750 store store remodels, and 100 store relocations. Um, and so like, and, and that's what they do. I mean, you almost have to think of it as a glorified convenience store. At least that's how I think of it, Dan. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's really, it doesn't fit it neatly into any other retail category, but it, it's, a, it's more like a, a convenience store on steroids. Um, and, it, uh, and they're so like the locations that they could pick are almost endless. So it's a convenience store of the old school. When I was a kid growing up in Swampscott, Massachusetts, uh, there used to be a little market on my way to school. It was called Paul's Market. And you could buy like ground beef and bacon and pancake mix and also the stuff you get at a, at a 7-Eleven now. Not that 7-Eleven doesn't have some of that. Dollar General is that to the exponential degree. I mentioned things like USB cables and, and towels and, you know, they'll sell housewares and, you know, you, you need some cheap paper plates. They're going to have that. It's it's a very densely packed store. The shelves are absolutely crowded. And as I said, they're not particularly well organized, but there is a lot going on in those stores. We're going to talk next about and, Tractor. Oh, go ahead, Matt. And, and I was just going to say, I was actually looking for the book on my shelf, but like I actually, uh, here it is. So I actually read the, the founder's autobiography of Dollar General. And it, it's really interesting. They get the small town store. I mean, they get that small town market because that's where their that's where their roots are from. Like they uh they started in like this podunk town in Kentucky where they operated for years, and they would just go to like neighboring towns, like and, and like buy stores that were in trouble or, or things like that. And they grew from there. And like when they moved to like Nashville, Tennessee, I think like that was like moving to the big city. Like when they moved their corporate headquarters there. I mean, they, they get the small town market because that's where they're from. Uh, that's where they're from. Like one of their first promotions they ever did, Dan, was like they they handed out all these uh, left-hand gloves to farmers in the market. And they said, you can get the other right-hand glove uh, for free when you came to a store. So like they, you know, like they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, you know, they, they, they get that market very well. The guy who lost his arm in the Thresher accident did not have to go in to get the other glove. We would like your questions and comments. Uh, Sneha, we see your comment. We'll take it at the end of the segment. But if you want to ask us questions about Dollar General, about our next company, Tractor Supply, about anything in the housing shift, we are happy to talk about that. We also know that it's Friday and many of you are going to be watching this show passively, perhaps uh, checked out a little bit. We appreciate that as well. So Tractor Supply is a company uh, that, that, that our mutual friend, Emily Flippin, put on my radar. It's not a company I'd ever really thought about. And then I realized I'd driven by a tractor supply for two years on the way to work. There's one in Manchester, Connecticut, uh, where I used to run the toy store. And what is tractor supply? It's the largest rural lifestyle retailer in the United States. What does that mean? They serve people 
who have farms and gardens and who live in places where you have to take care of the outside of your home. Matt, this is a little bit foreign to me. I, um, I feel like plants curl up when I walk by. Like they, they sell baby chicks at Tractor Supply, only seasonally. You can only buy chicks at certain times a year. They will actually mail them to you, which seems dangerous. I feel like the baby chicks will just keel over if I come in. So I am not the target audience here, but this is a company that knows its audience incredibly well and they have no competitors. These might, tractor supplies are in places where the nearest Walmart might be a 20 minute ride away, where, where the supermarket isn't selling the things that tractor supply sells. So this is a company that's located incredibly well. They're incredibly in touch with their audience and they really just understand what they're doing. And they had a blowout quarter. Now, mind you, some of this is fueled by what we talked about earlier. All these people who lived in the big city that are moving to rural areas are, and I think they might, many of them will become disenchanted with this, but they're like churning their own butter and, and, and building chicken coops and planting crops and all sorts of things like that. So in the most recent quarter, net sales increased 42.5%. Comparable store sales were up 38.6%. Diluted earnings per share were up 118%. E-commerce sales grew by triple digits. And the company has raised its EPS range uh, to $7.05 to $7.40 for the full year, up from $6.50 to $6.90. So I actually think this is sustainable. Now, are they going to be putting up double-digit growth and even triple-digit growth every quarter? No. But as we see this population shift, I don't think you're going to see targets opening up in these markets. I don't think you're going to see Walmart put in stores to serve. Now, will there be some things on the fringes? Yeah, absolutely. Some of those bigger, small cities we talked about uh, that, that are big and spread out, like where I am in Davenport, Florida, uh, where there's absolutely dense population in certain places, but there's also rural community areas and people with farms and people with land. So yeah, you might see some growth of the other chains, but for the most part, you are seeing more people move to where tractor supply is. And that's going to be very, very good for this company. Matt, you had a graphic for this one as well. Uh, yeah, Sam, why don't you go ahead and throw up the tractor supply business? But yeah, the, uh, you know, the like Dan, all the, all the numbers you talked about, like, you know, uh, customer traffic was up 21%. The average uh, price ticket uh, for visitors was up 17.6%. But Dan, the number that really stands out is the triple-digit e-commerce growth for the fourth consecutive quarter. That That's incredible numbers right there. It is. It's also worth noting, and you can take the graphic down, Sam, that's, that growth is coming kind of from nothing. This is really an in-person company. It's, it's mostly things you want to do. So the pandemic brought in more audience. That's obvious by the 21% increase in traffic. But it's also a wealthier audience. If you downsized but kept your job, or maybe upsized but moved to a cheaper home, and you're still making the money you were making in the big city, you have much more money to spend. You might also be seeing an audience moving into these places that's simply more comfortable with e-commerce. If, if you were an in-person tractor supply customer, it's very likely that during the pandemic, once things subsided and became safe to go out, you probably like that routine. I, I know any place I shop in person, I've largely gone back to shopping in person. This is a steadily growing company. It's not one people talk about very often. And, and I think it's just a steady retail winner. And competing with them would really involve another company making a really significant investment 
uh, and I don't see well, that happening. Go and, ahead, man. You know, yeah, Home Depot tried a few years ago, Dan, uh, to like, I forget what they called it, but they tried to make a store that competed with it and it didn't work out. I mean, they failed. I mean, they, they get, kind of gave up like within a, a year or two of starting that project. Uh, that goes back like a decade, but it shows you like tractor supplies uh, really understands that market. And like you said, I mean, it's a mixture of like, feed for animals and, and seeds and, and, and uh, planting things. Uh, you know, it also has like some lawn decorations and, and like knives and leatherman tools. So that's that like part, you know, it has some tools with like part Home Depot and part like, you know, all garden supplies and, and all these other things. But yeah, like you said, it's really for people living out of the country who wants to, who wants to build that chicken coop and who needs chicken feed and uh, you know, all the other things that goes with raising chickens or 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 you know like pigs like you know it has pig feed and, and things like that and uh you know it, it, it understands this market because it's done it phenomenally well over the last decade the only thing i don't like about this company is its name because i'm sure they do sell some <laughs> level of supplies for tractors but that is sure. that is not their core product this isn't a john deere where you walk in and buy like those big wheels or I, you can see what i know about tractors it's not very much <laughs> matt the third one on this list and remember seven investors you can get your questions and comments in it doesn't have to be about what we're talking about right now we're, we're going to get to talking about investing lessons we learned during the pandemic those are all things that came from you on social media. But Matt, you're gonna talk about Casey's General Store. This is one I actually don't know that well. Yeah, Dan, so it, Casey's is a, is a convenience store. It operates almost 2,200 uh, stores in, in 16 states, mostly in the Midwest. And it's it's like a gas station too. So if you're on the East Coast and you're not familiar with Casey's, similar to a Wawa's or, or a QT or a Sheets, like one of those uh, operations, um, it, 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 and it found success, though, by opening stores in small towns uh, across Iowa, and it still does that today. So I want to say, like, uh, nine or, or over 50% of Casey locations are in population areas that, are, that have a population of less than 5,000. Um, so it's the fourth largest convenience store in the U.S. It's the fifth largest pizza chain in the U.S. because they make this pizza that's I've never been to a Casey's because the Midwest is, is it's outside of my range of, of road trips. Um, <laughs> but one day I hope to to do that. But like uh, apparently they sell a pretty good pizza. They make it from scratch, or you know how they advertise it, and uh, you know it, it's pretty popular. Um, it, its rewards program has 3.3 million members, which is pretty good, I think, for a gas station um, and convenience store. Its digital sales were up 95% year over year in its latest quarter. So like more people are ordering on their app and online. Uh, its EPS was up 14%. Its revenue was down about 12%, but that's not the best way to judge Casey's because of gas prices can fluctuate so much. So depending on how gas prices are, like their revenue might be up or down, but has no bearing on their profit. So like, don't look at revenue growth so much as their earnings growth. Um, and Casey, um, I'm sorry, Sam, we also have a, a graphic for Casey's uh, that we can show. So you can see over the last over the last decade plus, I mean, their revenue's grown at 7.1%. They're inside sales. So this is like the high margin food they sell inside. So this is really important. Their inside sales have increased by almost 10% uh, oh. since 2009. Uh, its fuel gallons have risen too, and it's it keeps growing units. So like, you know, it's grown its units by about 4%. Uh, at a compound annual growth rate uh, over the last decade. So it's expanding, it's opening up new distribution centers, but like the thing you really wanna watch is their earnings growth and the inside store sales, because those are the, the much higher margin project uh, 
products that they sell on the inside of the store than like the, the gasoline sales. One of the things that's important to bring up about all of these stores is they're really, really good at picking locations. And if you pick locations right, it becomes very, very hard to compete because Dollar General is established. Tractor Supply, Casey's, they're established in their markets. If you go in next to a Casey's and open a Wawa, of course Wawa has some of its own fans and there might be some excitement, but the people who go to Casey's are probably still going to go to Casey's. So you know, it's very much like how difficult it is to compete with, say, Dunkin' Donuts in, in parts of New England where the small town, the core of the town is the Dunkin' Donuts. That's true in the town I grew up in. There are other coffee chains there, but definitely sort of like the town hall is the Dunkin' Donuts. Matt? Yeah, absolutely. And so one more thing, Dan, I actually just pulled up those numbers. So 57% of Casey stores are still found in areas with populations of 5,000 or less. Only 17% of Casey's locations are in pop are in areas with populations of 20,000 or more. And a lot of times they built that out, but the area just grew up around it. So like, like you, to your point, they, they, they're excellent at picking out these underserved areas. We, that, that's like uh, the thing that just keeps coming up, right, Dan? Like these underserved areas that like uh, Dollar General and Tractor Supply and, and Casey's too have found a way to exploit and turn a nice profit to doing it. So before we seg into our next topic, I wanted to take the one comment from Sneha. We promised we would. So Sam, if you want to bring that up. Uh, hi, Dan and Matt. On the topic of housing, how do you compare Redfin, Zillow, and Open Door? And I'm going to take a cop out here. Matt, you're welcome to weigh in. I will start with the caveat that I am probably outvoted by members of the team that are fans of these companies, uh, and I am not. I, I don't own any of these, and here's why. They're operating in a space where the margins are already low. A real estate commission is 6% at the max. Now, when they're doing something like iBuying, that gives them some leeway uh, where you already would have been paying that commission that, so they can, you know, they're paying you less, but well, you don't have to pay your realtor, but it's really, really tight. And to me, I don't see that real estate is something that needs to be disrupted. I, I like working with a, a realtor who's a person who knows the market. When we were looking for our condo, I did approach uh, through Zillow and Zillow assigned me to someone who wasn't any good and, and didn't keep in touch and didn't send me what I was looking for. I wanted someone who wasn't going to send me every three bedroom. I only wanted to see three bedrooms in resorts or two bedrooms in resorts. And I found it a pretty bad experience, whereas the real estate experience with a realtor is actually really, really good if you pick the right person. And I understand some people think 6% is high, but compared to what they're trying to do with iBuying, it is not high. Um, and in terms of trying to sell it yourself, yeah, in some markets you can do that. But that's also difficult as well. Matt, I think you disagree with me on this one. Yeah. So well, what I'll say is this. Um, out of those three companies, I like Redfin the best. I think there is a way to make the whole process of getting a mortgage and buying a house and selling a house like more simpler and cheaper for, for the buyer and seller. And I think Redfin it has the best chance of doing that. Uh, Open Door is making that process very simple, but it's also charging more. And I'm not sure if there's too much of an appetite for that. So Open Door is actually the one I like the least. Um, Zillow, I'll take a cop out. I don't know it as well as those two, um, but I do have a, a, a small position in Redfin. Before we hit the home stretch here, uh, Matt, let's talk a little bit about the past couple of days. So we're only a few days past the first of the month. And the first of the month is where our new rec is when our new recommendations come out. 
So as a member, you get access to our recommendations. You get access to the videos of our recommendations. These are 25 minute, 35 minute, really long pieces where we lay out a case with a whole PowerPoint presentation and everyone on the team gets to ask us questions. So not only do you get our take on the stock we're picking, you also get our answers to the questions and objections of the other members of the team. On the third Friday of the month, we are gonna do our new member call. Uh, that is where new members to the service uh, get to log in and learn. We talk about how the service works, even basic things like how to open a brokerage account. And then of course we do our subscriber call. That's a 90 minute call where people can ask us about our ongoing picks. And I think the new member call this month, Matt, is gonna be especially busy because we announced something uh, a few days ago. We announced that our prices are going to increase. So right now, our prices are $17 a month or $170 a year. And if you join through July 7th, you get those prices, not just for the year, not just for the month, but forever. So if you become a founding member, someone who joined in, in our early days, we are never going to raise your price. So you still have about four weeks, a little more than four weeks to lock in that pricing. After that, if you don't join, you're going to pay $49 a month or $399 a year. Matt, it's a value even at that. And I know I work here and I'm biased, but we're raising prices largely because people told us we were crazy to charge so little. I'll let you weigh in before we hit the home stretch here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, please, please take advantage of this. Uh, you have a little over a month left to lock in these prices, uh, which is just, again, biased. Of course, I'm biased, but I just think it's a phenomenal value for what you get. Absolutely. So I asked the question on Twitter, what investing lessons did you learn from the pandemic? And when I ask a question like that, I usually am the first one to throw out an answer. So Sam, if you want to throw up my answer, that would be fabulous. Assuming Sam has these answers. If she does not, I, there we go. I'll say it's my, the lesson I learned is that the best companies are two steps ahead which helps a lot when the unexpected happens. So I've talked about McDonald's a lot before. You could talk about Domino's. It's, it's not limited to, to food companies, but company, it, you know, Target and Walmart would also be great examples. Target and Walmart didn't pioneer curbside pickup or work on same-day delivery because they thought we were going to have a pandemic any more than they stocked up on you know, axes because a zombie apocalypse is coming. Like They were engineering for a future and that work they did paid off. So that's the type of thing we are talking about here. We're going to start with one from Ken McInerney, who I was actually chatting with earlier today. Uh, he says, I don't know where I heard it, but it would be thinking long-term investing over wanting to be a quick, shrewd player. Got burned enough times dumping a stock too early. Can't think a trade the other way that was just in time. Woo! Matt, your thoughts here. No, absolutely. Uh, look, if you had asked me in March 19th or March 20th, uh, 2020, I think that's when the market bottomed, um, like, you know, what the next weeks or months were going to hold for the market, I, I would have easily predicted just more pain. Like, I, you know, that was the time, like, we, nobody knew how, how serious the pandemic was going to be. Nobody knew when the economy would reopen. Uh, things were looking the bleakest. And I thought, like, the, I thought for sure the market wasn't going anywhere for a long, long time. And how wrong was I, you know, if you were trying to get in and out of, 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 of these companies that we invest in, like you, there's no way you would have, you, you would have missed so much of that move up over the last year. And like, and who would have predicted that back in March? I mean, like, you know, I, I, I certainly wasn't like, you know, it was, it was about like 
but thinking about the long term and thinking about like where the, eventually the pandemic would end and thinking about coming out of it allowed me to like just hold on to to the positions in my portfolio. And without that long-term perspective, if you're just trying to trade in and out of companies, timing movements right, there's no way you'd have gotten that right. Matt throwing out a clubber lang and predicting pain uh, of a <laughs> Rocky Three callback for those of you who are watching at home. So I think it's really important here to realize that in the short term, we don't know what's going to happen. Who knew that a pandemic was going to hit and everyone was going to want a Big Mac? That did not seem all that logical. I, I probably would have predicted pizza sales up. I didn't necessarily predict that some of the companies that would do well or some of the companies that had to close their physical locations, like say Best Buy, how well they would recover and how unseen demand, like who, who knew that every kid was going to have to work at home for six or nine months or whatever it is. And we would need desks and laptops and tablets and headphones and webcams. You couldn't buy a webcam for quite a while. I mean, the pandemic was probably also good for say like Staples and Office Depot, which are not great investments or, or great companies in the first place. Uh, so nobody knows in the short term. And let's throw one up next from our very own Anurban Mahante, who hopefully is sleeping right now. Uh, time is the friend of the wonderful business and enemy of the mediocre. Saw so many two, uh, tier two, three, and four businesses dilute their shareholders to death just to survive. And one way to assess quality, just peek into the balance sheet. Cash is slash was king. Your thoughts on this, Matt? Well, one, the balance sheet, uh, definitely. Like if you have cash, you have some optionality. You don't have to worry about immediately uh, surviving any crisis. Um, you know, you have a little bit of leeway there. So 100 uh, percent like balance sheet strength is something to always look at. And the other thing, too, about the just the uh, the, the difference between mediocre companies or, or higher quality companies. Look, the ability to innovate and to think on your feet and to roll with the punches, so to speak, sticking with the clubber lane, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> sticking with the, the, the clubber lane theme here, like the ability to roll with the punches for companies is so, so uh, underrated. Like Best Buy being able to like quickly develop and like uh, sell things curbside and have customers just pull up in the parking lot. What do you need? Go out and get it or order on the app so they can pick it up curbside. You know, companies like Square, like how quickly they rolled out things for their customers saying, hey, look, we, we collected uh, all these email addresses and phone numbers on your behalf. So let's start a marketing campaign that you're open for business. And we already have partnerships with with uh, these third-party delivery companies. So you can deliver and, and set up curbside like that. So companies that were able to uh, innovate quickly were the ones that did the best in the pandemic. I thought you were going with a Van Halen reference with Roll With The Punches. So yeah. <laughs> we're, we're going old school 80s here on 7 Investing Now. Uh, Stock Investor says chaos can, ca can catalyze a quality company. Uh, yeah, you learn about people when things go wrong. A lot of people seem steady. A lot of leaders seem great. And then something goes wrong and they're crying in the corner or abandoning their post. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but we've seen it here. Some companies that you didn't know how great their CEO was. I don't think we knew how good a CEO Brian Cornell was, uh, or for most of the pandemic uh, over at Best Buy was Hubert Jolie. It's, it's, uh, I'm forgetting the woman's name. Uh, there, there's a new CEO there. Her first name is Corey. I apologize for forgetting her name. Uh, but, but that being said, we saw how people took this terrible, terrible blow, and then they came back from it. We're going to share a couple that we don't necessarily agree with right in a row. And when I say this, it is with all respect. These are friends of the family. These are people that are active with us on, on Twitter. So 
Uh, I, I push back a little on Twitter. You're allowed to not agree with me. Uh, but if you want to share Chooch's comment, Sam, and then we can go right into Giovanni's. Uh, when a stock explodes four times in just three months, take profits. Don't ride it all the way back down because you're thinking long term. I don't agree with that. I'll explain in a second. If you want to move on to Giovanni's. Oh, yep. Bring that up. Thank you. When your stocks go parabolic up, you better start selling by dollar cost averaging on the way up. Example, selling 35% of a position, then re-enter after the unavoidable correction. Corrections are not unavoidable. Uh, there, there are plenty of stocks that if you did that, you would never be able to get back in. So let me give a very broad statement. I had a long conversation with Simon Erickson after our show on, on Wednesday. Simon is, of course, our CEO, our fellow lead advisor. And we talked about how historically, if you look through the various portfolios and places we've worked, our personal portfolios, that it actually almost never makes sense to sell. The only caveat I'll say, and it's in line, I'll let Matt weigh in in a second here. It's in line with, with a little bit of what Chooch said. If I own something and it literally goes up 400% and all of a sudden it's 60% of my portfolio and I feel it's a risk stock, not a foundational stock, then I might sell a little, but that's a personal peace of mind, sleep at night thing. The reality is history has shown us that selling just because the stock has gone up is actually not a good idea. Matt, your thoughts here? Well, I, I, I hate to like kind of cop out, but like it, it, it kind of depends too. Like one, it depends on your thesis. Like what is your thesis? Like, uh, you know, and, and, and on, on each situation, like I, I will say I have trimmed companies because of extreme valuation. You know, like sometimes I get into a company and I think, you know, this could definitely go up three or four times over the next five years. And I like the optionality. And so I make it a small position, even though I see there's a lot of risk. And a lot of times that risk I see is valuation risk. And then if it explodes upward three to four times in six months, like where my almost my five year thesis is played out, like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll take some off the table. I, I, I think I, uh, uh, you know, that that's that's how I do that. That's what I do. Um, now, at other times, too, again, though, always depending on the situation or your thesis, like, uh, you know, when it's a company like Amazon or Shopify, that like these great companies, their valuations are almost always going to be ahead of themselves. And, and like companies like that, where the total addressable market is large and the optionality. And again, also, why is the stock up three to four times in six months? Are they entering a new market? Are they like are, are sales like way up more than people thought like so there's just so many variables here it's hard, it's hard to say like it's hard to paint with too much of a broad stroke here so it it, it really kind of depends on a lot of things here but uh 100 like i'm always long-term buy hold i never exit a position just because of valuation uh but sometimes sometimes i do true and we've done many shows on why we sell a stock uh, you know again i've talked about this if something that i thought was going to go up 1400% goes up 1400%, you know, then maybe I've reached the end of my thesis. And I've mentioned that a bunch of times. And here's the reality. That's much more true in say retail, where there can be a finite number of stores for many brands. So you might get to a point where you go, okay, that brand is, has kind of spread out, you know, 10 years from now, maybe Dollar General has opened every Dollar General and the other things they've tried to spin out and they do have another concept they're working on. Maybe it didn't work and you go, okay, that's probably not true in tech. That's probably not true in biotech. So I've said this many times on air, but the reality is I've never actually had it play out in my, my real life investing story. I've never seen a company that I believed in not find some new avenue for growth and, and sort of actually hit the end of the investing thesis. We're going to get to a couple more here. I just want to say, I appreciate how many of you, we're, we're not even going to be able to use half of the ones I have on my list here. Uh, Cause we're bumping up against time. And the fact that, uh, 
I have to drive home in what's going to be a very, very rainy day and want to take it very slow. Uh, I don't know, Matt, if you've driven the Florida Turnpike. It's absolutely terrifying when it's rainy. Uh, it, it basically becomes a river on both sides of you, and it's a two-lane road, and you can't see. So we're, we're not going to go quite as long as we normally do. But I want to take one uh, from our from uh, our very own Brock Briggs uh, as, as our next to last one here. If you're kept up at night worrying about your portfolio, something is wrong, allocation, selection, or some combination. I feel really confident in that one. There were points during the pandemic where I looked at my portfolio, you know, and, and, and it was a sea of red. It was ugly. It, it, it did not look great. And none of it, it, I went in my head, I said, did anything change about these companies? And I went, no, we're in a pandemic. Like th- these companies may suffer for a year, two years, who knows what it is. Do I believe they'll turn it around? Yes. Now, those of you who are seven investing members, and if you're not, that is of course, seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. You will know that my pick last month, not this month, last month, was a company that I didn't buy for much of the pandemic because I was worried about long-term survivability, or at least a Chapter 11 wiping out shareholder equity. And once a corner was turned where that was no longer a concern, it became one of my favorite investments. And I think one of the investments that has the most upside. Matt, you sleep well at night, right? You don't worry about your portfolio. Well, yes. Uh, And so like, it's like, like Rocky Balboa, sometimes your company has to take a punch and, and get back up. So uh, sticking with the Rocky theme there, like, yeah, absolutely. Like you have to know, you have to know why you, you hold the companies in your portfolio. You have to know wh- why you believe uh, those, those companies will do well over the long term. And you have to understand also that the name of the game is that there will be volatility along the way and that they will go down 20%. And if you don't know why you own those companies, like, your faith will be severely challenged during those times. And you will, you will lose sleep. You will be thinking about it. Uh, you know, your portfolio when you should be thinking about, about other things. So uh, definitely like, you know, again, like, like you said, Dan, like uh, not to toot our own horn here at seven investing, but one of the advantages is like, you know, when you, when we suggest companies, you know, it's not just a ticker, like in a tweet or, or, you know, uh, the bull thesis explained in a, in a couple of tweets on Twitter or something like that, you're, you're getting a 2,000 to 3,000 word report explaining why, like the, the thesis in this company, you're getting regular company updates on it, you know, you, but you have to know, you have to know why you hold the companies in your portfolio and why you think they'll succeed. And we don't even own a horn. Sam Bailey, we should put that on the marketing acquisition list. We should get a horn. So occasionally we can toot our own horn. Right now we'd be tooting a borrowed horn. And that is not nearly as good. <laughs> it's not We're the take, same. It's, not it's the not. same. We're going to take the last one here from Buddhist Investor. And again, I apologize to the many I didn't get to. There were a lot of them on the list here. But I thought this one, uh, in line with it being a Buddhist investor, I have no idea if Buddhist Investor is actually a Buddhist. Uh, patience is very boring but the results are exciting. We can't emphasize this enough. We talk about get rich slowly and I get it. It's really fun to like be like my friend who bought some some Dogecoin and forgot about it and went into the account and realized he had $70,000. Like that's great, but that's like when someone gives you a scratch off lottery ticket for your birthday and you scratch it, you win $10,000. That wasn't planning, that wasn't strategy. There's You're not in the know. That's like if I go to the casino and I'm playing three-card blackjack you know, and get a four of a kind. That never happened to me. That happened to our, our friend and colleague, Matt Frankel. And that is so rare that they actually had to watch the tape to make sure he wasn't cheating. And the payout on you know, what was like a $60, $70 bet when, when all is in because you don't pull any of your bets back, um, it was like a $4,500 payout. That's not because he's brilliant. 
That's because the cards felt that way and he knew the basic way to play. So yeah, most of your riches are going to be about being patient. Matt, I'll give you the last word. Well, I mean, it goes back to the famous Warren Buffett line, right? Like when asked why, uh, you know, he was told like what he did was pretty simple. He, he bought great companies and great businesses and, and, and held on to them. And like uh, he was asked, like, why didn't more people do it the way he did it? And he replied, because most people don't want to get rich slowly. You know, like, but but patience pays pays many dividends, uh, figuratively and, and literally, and uh, and and that's what you'll be rewarded for as an investor. Like, yes, there's a lot of FOMO out there because you see like some of these like cryptocurrency coins, like you know that don't even have a purpose. You know, um, uh, uh, some more than others, I guess. But like, you know, they'll explode in value and then get decimated over the next week or, or whatever. There's a lot of FOMO out there, but like. If you buy great companies and you hold for the long term, you are, you know, history has shown that you're going to be rewarded for that. And I know this isn't a universal rule, but, but here's where I am on some of these things. If I can't explain why something is going to gain in value, then I probably don't want to own it. And we, we talked about uh, AMC on the Wednesday show. We've talked about GameStop many times. Obviously, there's people who understand the crypto market and make a thesis for why you should buy certain coins. And I might listen to those people and adopt their thesis. But there is not a person on earth who could look at GameStop or AMC and make a case for their valuation. So to me, at some point, that's a bubble. That's a balloon. Eventually, it gets deflated. Uh, you know, Things can't go up forever when there's nothing actually backing that. And, and can the internet support something for a while? Absolutely, it can but probably not forever. This brings us to our finisher. This isn't pro wrestling. You don't have to hit like six finishers. You know, nobody gets up from, you know, three elbows off the rope or, or two F5s. Here, we're going to do the finisher and we're going to oh, do it once. Though in Rocky three, Rocky did fight Hulk Hogan too. So, you know, there's, there's wrestling theme here too. We are bringing up Thunderlips. There was a summer where I was at camp and, and I taught, I don't even remember what I taught. I, I, journalism maybe. And someone else was teaching video. And the only movie we had in our little mocked up video studio was Rocky three. And we had the Simpsons episode where Homer plays softball. So I've seen that movie at least 45 times that summer. And that Simpsons episode, probably almost as many. So there's very little about Rocky three. I do not know. That is my favorite of the Rocky movies. I know. It's oh, cheesy. no. Over, I know over Rocky four. No. With Ivan Drago? Come wow, on. Wow, you, you went the other direction. I thought I thought you were gonna make the Rocky argument that that's clearly the best movie. Rocky oh, Four is when it went a little over the top for me. It that, ended that's the just, Cold War. Come on, Dan. It, it <laughs> did. It had fake Gorbachev in it. It's um the, the Russian fans inexplicably cheering for him at the end. We have gone way off the rails. I appreciate everyone indulging us here. Sam Bailey, let's hit our finisher. Which company will have the largest market cap in 2040? Uh, more than half of you said Microsoft. 30% said Tesla. 5.6% said Walmart. 11.3% said Walt Disney. Matt, can I make a case for Walt Disney that right now, I don't think Disney's getting pretty much any bump. I, I realize Disney stock is, is, is up you know, 50% in the last year or something like that. I don't feel like it's getting anywhere near the tech bump it should be getting for Disney+. Plus. Uh, I also think there's way more value in ESPN Plus and, and that whole market as the world starts to get smaller in terms of the cable universe. So I, I get it. Walmart, uh, excuse me, Walmart. Microsoft is very, very valuable, but not necessarily going to stay there. 
Yeah, well, I love Disney, so I'm not going to argue too much. However, I I, th I think I would say like micro. I would uh, answering that question. I think I'd go with Microsoft. And if you gave me odds based on those results, like I might even take a flyer on Walmart. Like if things go a certain way, I could see them, uh, you know, doing very well over the next uh, 20 years. So, uh, but it, just answering the poll straight up, I love Disney. I love Walmart. Um, I, no, no real opinion on Tesla, but like I, I think I'd answer Microsoft. Walmart would need to acquire a tech company in order to have that. They are not going to hit that type of valuation just with stores. The other thing I love with Disney is we're about to see, I mean, maybe we're a year away, the ultra premium model with the Star Wars hotel. If that works, if people are willing to pay, you know, essentially premium cruise prices for a two day experience, it's not crazy to think we could get a Marvel hotel and a frozen experience and who knows what else. So Disney's ability to go way upscale and then maybe even lower prices to make the parks more democratic and make more people get in. I think there's a ton they can do there. But with that, we're going to close the Friday edition of 7investing now. If you'd like to get in touch with us, it is info at 7investing.com. If you'd like to interact with us on Twitter, it is at 7investing. That is the number at the number seven, the, the symbol at the number seven investing. We are very active on Twitter. And of course, if you would like to subscribe, remember, you have to subscribe by the end of the day on July 7th to lock in the current pricing or else it goes way up. That is 7investing.com slash subscribe. For Sam Bailey, for Matt Cochran, I am Dan Klein. I'll see you Monday with Max Chasco. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.